If you're able to remain standing, I invite you to do so. Uh, either way, take your Bibles and uh, turn to uh, Isaiah 52, beginning at verse 13. That's on page 613, if you would like to use a Bible from the church. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning at verse 13, and I'll try to read all the way over to verse 12 of chapter 53. This will be our summer scripture memory passage, and uh, we'll try to, as it's been our custom over the summer, spend most of our time then this summer uh, considering the passage in closer detail. This is God's Word, and here's what God says, beginning at verse 13, Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, of man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom mid men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And, and, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put him, he has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You may be seated. Father, there is no word like your word. Help us now to look closely at your word for these next few moments. Help us May your spirit enliven our hearts and our minds in our time together. May you teach us some things, but Father, may you transform us through your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two things I want us to consider as we begin our summertime together in Isaiah 52 and 53. I want to look at the broader context, and what I mean by that is I want to do, and I think I'm crazy for doing this, but I want to do a quick scan of the book of Isaiah this morning, and then we want to look at the more immediate context of Isaiah 52 and 53. First of all, the broader context. I don't know that there is uh, a more important uh, book in the Old Testament. Of course, that's an audacious claim. That's just preacher talk, I suppose. But um, there is. But I can say is that there's no book of the Old Testament that is more quoted in the New Testament than the book of Isaiah. So that would stress something of its importance to us. And even the passage, 5213 to 5312, I... Uh, it may be the most important text in all of the Old Testament, uh, at least one of them. Well, there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. On the one hand, it's, it's dealing with a, a real historical context. It's speaking... Um, to the kingdom of Judah, the, the southern kingdom, after the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms. Um, and, and, and yet the storyline that Israel finds themselves in is really the storyline of history and humanity and of Scripture itself. Not only do, do the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah coincide with the 66 books of the Bible, it, it traces the, from, from um, Isaiah chapter 1 to Isaiah chapter 66, traces the history of the world much like the Bible does. Chapter 1 of Isaiah touches on the, the imagery of Genesis chapter 1, and uh, Isaiah chapter 66 touches on the imagery of Revelation 20. 1 and 22. It, it, it literally is a scan of Israel's story, but it's a scan of the story of humanity from creation to recreation. 
In fact, um, beginning with a quick survey in, in, in chapter 1 of Isaiah, the, the, the second verse, it, 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 it likens into the very imagery of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and uh, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth, and God spoke all things into existence in Genesis chapter 1. But Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2 says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So just like the all of history began by the spoken word of God. Uh, the heavens and the earth were made by the spoken word of God. Now Isaiah calls the heavens and the earth to hear the words of God. And what we read in, in, in Isaiah chapter 1, the first couple of verses, second part of verse 2, on down into verses 3, 4, and 5, as we, we see not only it likened into creation, but we see it likened tragically into the fall of mankind. Genesis 1, 2, I mean, Isaiah 1, 2 says, um, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. He goes on to say in verse 4 of chapter 1, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Uh, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. In other words, the very state that we find Judah in as delineated in Isaiah chapter 1 is the very state that we find humanity in as a result of the rebellion in the garden. The very imageries of Genesis 3 on is heightened and zoned in on so that humanity's story is Israel's story. Israel's story is, in fact, humanity's story, that we have been made by God to hear Him, to listen to Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, to love Him, and we have rejected that. We have rebelled against Him. And, and, and yet, by the time Isaiah works through this vision, this prophecy, by the time we get to Isaiah 65 and 66, uh, then it, it goes in technicolor of the same sort of uh, imagery of the future that we find in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And Isaiah 65, 17, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. The God who made heavens and earth was not thwarted by the rebellion. God has a plan, and it is being carried out according to his plans, in accordance with his timing. Isaiah awakens us to that, 
And it's the same imagery that we find at the end of the scriptures. Or Isaiah 66, verses 22 to 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From the new moon to the new moon, from the Sabbath to the Sabbath, from the Sabbath to the Sabbath, all flesh shall come and worship before me. Isaiah heightens our awareness to the vision of reality that God will remake the heavens and the earth. And the end game of that remaking of the heavens and the earth is that God will have us as his people and we will be God's people. And there we in an eternal state, uh, in a new heavens and a new earth, get to sing uh, the glorious praises of the God who has rescued us. And so Isaiah, in 66 chapters, covers the whole scope of history of humanity and the whole scope and breadth of the timeline of Scripture itself. Now, who is this guy? Who is Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 1, 1 says he's the son of Amos, and that he received a vision, an oracle, concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, and it mentions four kings of Judah, uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and uh, Hezekiah. Now, historically, what that means is Isaiah served as a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah for 52, 53 some odd years, from 739 B.C. to 686 B.C. He comes on the scene shortly um, um, before the Assyrians swoop down and uh, invade the northern kingdom of Israel, which occurred in 722 B.C. So he'd been on the scene for umpteen years before that. And, and yet while the Assyrians were sweeping down and destroying the northern kingdom of Israel, they came on the borders and they literally surrounded Jerusalem and they seriously threatened the southern kingdom of Judah as well. Isaiah is ministering these oracles, these visions, these prophecies during this time. He leaves... He leaves, he departs, he passes away uh, in somewhere in 686 B.C., some 100 years before the Babylonians will assume power and will come and, and uh, conquer the southern kingdom of Judah, destroy the temple in Jerusalem, uh, and carry away the people of Judah into captivity and Babylonian exile. And although he was dead 100 years before that fully was implemented, his prophecies call it, spell it out, describe it, predict it. In fact, while much of it is uh, historical, while much of it is a vision of the future, chapters 36 through 39 are kind of a historical interlude that describe the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom, the threat to the southern kingdom, and, and then, uh, and then the, the envoys from Babylon who come and, uh, and they become a precursor of how they will be back in a few years and to, to, 
to decimate Jerusalem and destroy the temple and take the people captive. But, but other than that historical interlude in chapters 36 through 39, uh, it's a vision from the Lord, and it, 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 it specifies at least three things. First of all, it indicts Judah. Israel as well, but it's primarily written to the southern kingdom of Judah. It indicts Judah concerning their covenant unfaithfulness. The southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, all of humanity uh, are unfaithful to the Lord. Israel was covenantally unfaithful to the Lord. They had made an agreement with, the God, with God. We saw that having finished the book of Exodus. All that you've commanded, we will do. If that's not the biggest lie in history, I don't know what is. The prophet Isaiah is now on the scene and saying that the, 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 the terms of the covenant that God made with you, that God promised that He would do these things for you, and you promised you would do these things before God, you've been unfaithful. Second thing the book of Isaiah underscores, that in not only an indictment, but the book of Isaiah uh, assures them that the covenant threats of judgment will fall upon them. I say covenant threats. God had promised, if you, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you, can, if you. I will keep you in the land. I will protect you in the land. I will provide for you in the land. But if you, if you disobey me, I will chastise you. I will discipline you. I will judge you. And if you keep on disobeying me, I, I will rip you out of the land. God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, I, I, I said that's what I would do. And that's what I'm going to do. But then a third thing that the book of Isaiah does, and uh, this is uh, a most beautiful thing. The book of Isaiah promises a still deeper covenant faithfulness on the Lord's part. And the book of Isaiah zeroes in on how will God remain faithful to a people who are unfaithful. He will do that by raising up a Davidic king, a king from the line of David, who will bring about a new exodus. In fact, the, the imagery of exodus uh, it, it runs rampant throughout the prophet Isaiah. We just finished the book of Exodus, and yet, and yet that becomes the imagery of what God is promising. He will raise up a descendant of David who will bring about a new release from captivity for the people of Israel. And, and in bringing about this new Exodus, he will thereby establish God's kingdom. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah uh, contain extremely strong notes of judgment and yet some notes of hope and comfort. But it does that in the context of describing this Davidic king who will be a mighty king, a warrior king, a just and a righteous king. For instance, Isaiah chapter 11 speaks of a root of Jesse, speaking of the lineage coming from 
the line of David. It says there, he will judge with righteousness. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. The first 39 chapters underscore this mighty king who is coming in righteousness and justice and judgment. Or Isaiah 32. Behold, a a king who will reign in righteousness. And, and, And those two examples depict the the majority tone of chapters 1 through 39, and yet, and yet what we see in a pivot, in a shift from chapters 40 on is, is not a, a contradiction of chapters 1 through 39, but a revelation of a further development as to how this mighty Davidic king who will bring about a new exodus and in so doing establish his kingdom how he will do this by means of his own suffering and sacrifice. So there is a strong pivot and shift. And in fact, uh, some Bible scholars, they're wrong, but some Bible scholars say the guy who wrote chapters 1 through 39 is not the the guy who wrote chapters 40 through 66. Well, it's the same Holy Spirit that moved upon Isaiah to write the whole thing, to be honest with you. But, but, but I see why they say that in, in, only in this sense, and that is there is a very strong tonal shift. The notes of mighty king in 1 through 39, the, the notes of judgment and the, the mere hints at comfort, but the strong notes of judgment pivot and shift where now we don't have a mighty king in chapters 40 through 66 as much as we have a suffering servant. Now we don't have the strong notes of judgment with a few hints of hope and comfort, but we have mighty strong uh, language of hope and comfort with still yet a few hints of judgment. So when we get to Isaiah chapter 40, it's as, it's as interesting as, of a shift in terms of tone as the Old Testament summarily is a shift in tone from the New Testament. In fact, Isaiah chapter 40, the shift, I think, lines up and coincides with, with the start of the New Testament. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, for instance, it says, A, a voice cries uh, in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert the, the highway for our God. It's an interesting statement. Do you know who's accredited as making that statement? All four Gospels attribute that statement from Isaiah chapter 40 to the ministry of John the Baptist that launches the ministry, the rescue mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, even by the time we get to the end of Isaiah in chapter 66, verse 18, that, 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 that what began with the first coming of Jesus 
that is alluded to in the early parts of Isaiah 40, and, and that section uh, it becomes full-orbed. And so in Isaiah 66, 18, very much reminiscent of Revelation chapter 21, 3, it says there in Isaiah 66, for I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and all tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. Revelation 21, 3 says, and there will be no need for a son, for the Lord and his glory will bring light. That those all will see the glory of the Lord at the end of history. The other thing I would note just in that section of chapters 40 on is that, that there are four what we would call servant songs in Isaiah 40 all the way over to Isaiah 55. The first servant song is in chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. The second servant song is chapter 49, verses 1 through 13. The third servant song is chapter 50, verses 4 through 11. And the fourth servant song, you just read it. Chapter 52, 13 through chapter 53, 12, which is the fullest of the four servant songs, which is the most uh, detailed and specked out of the servant songs. They, and what they do is each of these songs in this section of Isaiah, uh, they all emphasize the suffering of a faithful servant. So the, the, the pivot in Isaiah is, how did we go from a mighty Davidic king in chapters 1 through 39 to a faithful servant who suffers in chapters 40 through 55? And I would suggest to you, we don't have time to develop this, but if we look at the imageries and the details and the connecting points, what Isaiah is teaching us is it's one and the same. The mighty Davidic king and the suffering servant are not two uh, different species. But the mighty Davidic king becomes the suffering servant. Now, it's interesting that, that Isaiah uses the language of suffering servant because in so doing, he is identifying this suffering servant with the people of Israel itself. Because all throughout this section of particularly chapters 40 on, um, he uses the word servant to describe this faithful servant who will die as a sacrifice, but he also uses the term servant to describe Israel. But when he uses the term to describe Israel, he's not describing a faithful servant who will die as a substitutionary sacrifice. He's describing an unfaithful servant. So it's fairly easy to sort out which critter is he talking about because is he talking about a faithful servant well then he's talking about the messiah the promised one who would suffer or is he talking about the an unfaithful servant and that would be israel of course now looking more closely at the passage before us that we will consider this summer chapter 52, 13 through 53, 12, uh, we now look at the more narrow or immediate context of our passage. And, and it's so interesting, after the third um, servant song, we really kind of begin the context for this fourth servant song. And so, and, and I would put it this way, then chapter 51, 1 through chapter 
52.12, just reading, dropping us right off where we're going to pick up at in 52.13. But, but there, in, in that segment leading up to our summer passage is what I would call anticipation of deliverance or salvation. In fact, in chapter 51, verse 1, verse 4, verse 7, it's, it's about anticipation of a deliverer, anticipation of deliverance, of salvation. And he says, listen to me, in verse 1. Give me your ear, in verse 4. Listen to me, in verse 7, all in chapter 51. Well, why? Why should we listen to him? Why should we give him the ear? Why, why, why should we listen to him? Because he's announcing that salvation is coming. And he goes on in chapter 51 and in chapter, part of chapter 52, it's specifying what will come about when this deliverance comes, when this salvation comes. For instance, in chapter 51, verse 11, the first, if you would, outcome of this salvation that the, that, that the deliverer would bring. He says in verse 11 of chapter 51, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. Then they shall ob obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You see, the, when the deliverer comes, when salvation comes, it's going to be what we would call happy time. Singing, festivity, delight, joy, gladness, sorrow and sign. We're done with those things. See, the, he says, listen to me. Give me your ear. Listen to me. I'm, I'm going to bring this about Another thing, he says in verse, uh, chapter 51, verse 22, not only will, when salvation comes, joy will be provided, but wrath will be removed. Behold, I have taken a, uh, from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of wrath you shall drink no more. That's because he's going to give the drink to the substitute. You know, the very imagery of when Jesus prays in the garden, if possible, take this cup away from me. I, 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 I know what I'm facing if I drink this cup because I'm actually drinking the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah is telling the people of Israel that when salvation comes, they will no longer have to drink from this cup because Jesus has drank it down dry to the dregs. So he concludes in, in chapter 52, anticipating this salvation, this delivery, says in, in verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, and who brings the good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says in Zion, your God reigns. So the Davidic king, who will come and rule and reign in righteousness, is being announced on the eve of announcing the one, the very same one who will also be the suffering servant. For what Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 answers is how, how, 
How will the deliverer bring about a deliverance that fills the hearts of God's people with joy? How will the deliverer who brings the deliverance take away God's just wrath from his people? How will the deliverer who brings about a deliverance establish the very rule and reign of God's kingdom on this earth? It'll be a time of peace and joy and salvation and happiness. He explains the how in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. And these verses are five stanzas of the, of the fourth servant song. Five stanzas, three verses of peace. So, Lord willing, next week we'll come back and we'll look at the first three verses. The first stanza, 52.13 through 52.15. And, 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 and yet... What I want to point out just by way of broad overview this morning is that in these five three-verse stanzas, they, they coincide with themselves. And this is very typical in how the Hebrew people would structure uh, these sort of songs. So, so for instance, the, the first stanza, 52, 13 through 15, corresponds with, has the very same thoughts and sentiments as, as the last stanza, the fifth stanza, which is 53, 11 through 12. All right, now you're not, this, is, this shouldn't surprise you then. Now the second stanza, which is 53, 1 through 3, has the notes and the themes and the imagery that corresponds with the fourth stanza, which is 53, 7 through 9. And so, so first stanza, fifth stanza, Second stanza, fourth stanza. Where does that leave the third stanza? Nobody to stanza with them, I guess. Uh, it's, it's all by its own self out there. But that's how the Hebrew people did it. That's, that's how they crafted lyrical song and poetry. And, and they did that not by happenstance or accident. They go, oh, hey, hey, Junior, we left out a stanza. No, no this was intentional. In other words, in, in sense that it's, that center, it's that center stanza that becomes the centerpiece of the work of the suffering servant. So in this center stanza of this central song, we, we get a glimpse at the very heart of history, the very heart of God's unfolding plans. How is it that God will raise up someone from the line of David to bring about a new exodus, a new deliverance, and thereby establish his kingdom. He will do it by raising up that king of David to be a suffering servant who will sacrificially substitute himself. Look at verses 4 through 6, and then we're about done. Then I got a plane to catch. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our, yes, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. There's so much in play here. We'll be back, Lord willing. But this servant's sufferings, this Davidic king who will bring about a new deliverance, a new salvation, and thereby establish his kingdom. This Davidic king is, in fact, first the suffering servant whose work is substitutionary. Ah, if there is one word that I want you to remember when you stand before the Lord. When the Lord says, I'm holy, why should I let you into my heaven? I, I don't want to be around when you start extolling your own thoughts of righteousness. I don't want to be around when you are going on and on about how wonderful and meritorious you are. No, if you have to give an account before the Lord as to why you should be let in to his holy and good heaven, I hope that the notion of substitution will loom large. I hope that you'll even say, you know, my pastor, he was fixated on this thing. He just kept on and on and on, like a broken record. He just fixated on substitution. My point is, not my quirks and my fixations. We can deal with that later, once we deal with yours first. But my point is, is that if we are to understand the point of Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, we have to understand that the very heart of the movement of Scripture is that God is putting forth a king of David, to be a suffering servant as a substitute for us, a, 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 one who would bear up under a, an, an act of sacrifice, bearing our guilt and our sin, offering himself as a sacrifice to atone for the guilt of our sin, so that the guilt of our sin, since it has experienced the payment of it through a substitute, could be removed from us so that the wrath of God would be abated from us. Substitution. In other words, the ultimate import of Christ's death was that it was a substitutionary sacrifice. Uh, 
this suffering servant, this king of David, laid down his life. Why? Because in verse 6, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has gone his own way. In other words, in Adam, we have said, I am not about to follow this creator. I'm not about to live my life the way he says it ought to be lived. I'm not about to order my life according to the good design and order that he has ordered it. I'm, I'm my own sheep. I'm doing my own thing. I'm going my own way. And Christ has bore up under the just judgment of such an attitude. In fact, the substitutionary metaphor bleeds over into verse 7. So we are like sheep who've gone astray. So what has Jesus become? He's like a lamb that has led to the slaughter, like a sheep bef- that, that, before its shearer that is silent. He opened not his mouth. We are like sheep who've gone astray. But the Lord has laid the iniquities of us all upon Jesus. And like a lamb, he opened not his mouth but took the strokes of justice for us, for our salvation, in our place. Us, us. Isaiah 54 and 55 wrap up this segment with a grand and glorious invitation. And that's how we end up our time together this morning. There is only one who can deal with our sin and the guilt of our sin and the alienation and the estrangement that we experience before the God who made us because of our sin. And that one is Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who died as a perfect sacrifice, who took upon himself our sin, its guilt, its punishment, its curse, its condemnation, so that all who turn to Jesus are welcomed as a part of God's family. We get to know God now as our Father. We get to belong to Jesus. He places his spirit in us, and he gives us a glorious, grand hope and future of being with him for all eternity. So turn to Christ. Trust only in Jesus, the only one whom God has put forward as the appropriate substitute for us, who has taken away our sin, who has bore up under its just condemnation. Turn to Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we would have it in front of us and be able to think about it and study it. And we would pray, Father, that as we look at your word, we would see what your word says to us about Jesus. So, Father, help us in these moments that as we've thought in broad, sweeping ways and yet in narrowed, focused ways about Isaiah and about Jesus... Father, may we leave out of here relying only in Jesus. May we leave out of here filled with a sense of joy, given a great sense of peace, and flooded with a great confidence and hope of the future. May we do so because we are trusting in Jesus. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this.